Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Later in the program, a look at the Aerospace Global Forum. That will be an integral part of this year's Farnborough International Air Show and our roundtable. But first, joining us now is David Tweedy, the General Manager for Advanced Combat Engines at GE Edison Works, dedicated to research development and production of advanced technology for military aircraft engines. Uh, David, thanks so very much for joining us and good to have you on. Uh, Good to be here, Vago. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, It was a pleasure uh, talking in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and we're heading into our Farnborough coverage, and so we thought this would be a good opportunity uh, to give the audience a little bit of an update uh, on uh, the uh, adaptive engine program. There is a perception that what you guys and Pratt & Whitney uh, have been working on is kind of the alternate engine, but that's not really the case. Walk us through the program as it's currently structured and what both of you guys are trying to uh, achieve. All right. Thanks, Vago. And AETP really represents the culmination of a multi-year effort led by the United States Air Force to invent, risk reduce, and mature the next generation of fighter engine technology. And and the United States has been blessed to have a technical advantage in combat propulsion for decades. That's not a birthright. It's something that's been earned by each generation to the next. And we've been given this opportunity to earn this for the next generation. This is an approach to mature a brand new type of fighter engine, a three-stream adaptive cycle engine through a structured risk reduction program starting all the way back in 2007 with the Advent Science and Technology Program, and in 2012, launching into more product-relevant prototyping under AETD and AATP with a requirement set size and optimized for the F-35 to bring uh, a brand new set of technology Uh, into being. And there's really three key elements of how the Air Force has structured this program. The first is they intentionally challenge industry to bring innovation, to do things different than have been done before, not looking for incremental solutions, but looking to pave the way, you know, to preserve and maintain that advantage that the fighter pilots have had for, for the past decades. The second is they've brought significant funding. The Air Force has invested over $4.4 billion across multiple engine companies and industry to mature this technology, to be able to do it right. And the third was to not initially tie it to a program of record, right? So we were able to mature this at the pace sufficient to do the work right, thoroughly learn, iterate, test, and move forward. And we're reaching the end of that path where we believe we've done our homework, we've done the hard work, and this technology is, is now ready to launch into low-risk EMD programs. We think it's time to bring this tremendous capability out of the test cell into the hands of the warfighter. And we're really looking for the opportunity to compete to, to win that opportunity. And you feel pretty confident that once it goes to competition, uh, that uh, you will prevail? We're going to bring a compelling offering to the table. Uh, and I like our chances. And uh, I should point out to the audience, right, you guys have two engines. The engine is at Test at Arnold, Test Development Center in uh, Tennessee, which is uh, where a lot of the great engine work for the United States Air Force uh, is happening. And a little bit of a kudo uh, to Air Force Secretary Frank uh, Kendall, who was uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, who um, put uh, a lot of faith in the development of this technology uh, in terms of having a better future capability and indeed more of a competitive engine environment. Uh, let's just say for the F-35, given the magnitude of the program. So you are sort of a second engine, even though you're a very different engine. Uh, David, walk us through, right? I mean, there is, uh, you know, folks have a tendency of, of knowing what a turbojet is and an afterburning turbojet, uh, which is what military engines generally are. But now you're adding another dimension to this, which is a bypass ability to give you uh, that greater fuel efficiency. Obviously, uh, a target is uh, uh, 25% fuel improvement. I think your threshold is 9% at least. How are you managing to effectively squeeze three different engines into this package in the same form, fit, and function that will fit into whether it's an F-35 or whether it's any other future um, fighter aircraft, given the weight and size constraints that you have in that? Well, Vago, there's, there's three key innovations that makes these, this generation of engines different from what's ever come before. Right? So the, the transition from turbojets to two-stream mixed-flow turbofans that happened in the late 1960s and 1970s 
resulted in a huge transformation in propulsion capability and, and vicariously uh, tactical fighter capability. We believe we're on that same precipice of a generational change. And the three key innovations, the first, as you mentioned, is the adaptive cycle engine, the ability to adjust bypass ratio and fan pressure ratio at different parts of the flight envelope in order to either perform more like a high bypass commercial turbofan engine uh, in a subsonic cruiser loiter condition or in a combat situation to move into a more traditional high thrust mode. So the first time the ability on the fly for an engine to reconfigure in flight to either a more fuel efficient mode or a high thrust mode. The second is a third stream architecture. Literally, a, we went from single stream turbojets to two stream turbofans. Now it's a third stream, cooler stream, primarily there to serve as a thermal management heat sink recognizing now that engines are no longer just thrust producing devices, they're also being asked to be thermal management devices and that enables a generational increase in capability there. The third is advanced materials and manufacturing technologies. While the first two innovations I talked about, the, the adaptive engine, the third stream is, is really military focused at this point, there's a lot of commercial synergy when we talk about our component level technologies. And for GE, it's particularly ceramic matrix composites CMCs that run hundreds of degrees hotter with increased durability and performance in hot sections, and additive technology, 3D printing. There's a significant amount of this engine that is manufactured additively that unlocks uh, the toolbox for the engineers from the constraints of conventional manufacturing. While a lot of that CMC and additive work was initially pioneered and explored in some of our military demonstrator programs, it was really our commercial business, and in particular, our LEAP narrowbody engine, that has industrialized those technologies. It include the, our LEAP engines out in the field include both CMCs and additive manufactured components. We've delivered over 5,000 chipsets of those engines and uh, those chipsets have over 18 million flight hours accumulated in, in the field. So uh, great synergy there, the technologies that are proving themselves out in the field and, and our, our commercial businesses has paved the way from an industrialization that our military customers will, will be able to benefit from. Those are the three key innovations. And as you mentioned, we think that those provide four fundamental capabilities. 25% better fuel burn, 10, at least 10% thrust, and sometimes up to 20% certain parts of the flight envelope, double the thermal management capability, and meeting and in, in, in potentially exceeding durability requirements in the hot section. And when you translate those engine level specifications to the platform, you can increase range 30%. You can improve your kinematic capability between 20 and 40%. You can double the thermal emission systems to make the, the platform more lethal and survivable. And you, with the durability, you improve readiness and overall life cycle costs. So we could really move the needle on four major characteristics in a big way with, with a new uh, and innovative approach to propulsion. You've given me a great roundup, and I don't have to ask you the commercial uh, military synergy, right? Because generally it is, uh, you know, military hot section drives, uh, you know, the commercial side of the business, but this time you're drawing, whether it's uh, digital design, twinning and all of that stuff, uh, as well as uh, additive. And I should point out to the audience, right? I mean, I think you're the only engine maker that uh, has a, it's a GE 90 fan blade that's in the Museum of Modern Art. So this stuff is, is sculpturally gorgeous as we were discussing before uh, the program. Uh, this program, uh, th these efforts, uh, David, have been going on now for some years. How soon before you are in an operational aircraft and become an alternative, uh, whether it's on the F-35 as an aftermarket original installed, uh, NGAD or any other military program. I know you can't talk about NGAD, but you know a future combat aircraft, whether a Navy or an Air Force one uh, or a future unmanned platform, a future bomber aircraft, whatever. Um, this is a class of engine that has a lot of application across the board uh, that goes beyond just the F-35. Uh, what are the timetables you're working at the gates and the wickets? And what is that date out there, whether it's 2028, 29, 30, 32, what is whatever, where this becomes part of the inventory and usable uh, in uh, and, you know, any application the government wants to use it? Yeah, so first thing, Vago, we, we have successfully tested our two prototype XA100 engines, the first one in our Evendale, Ohio facility last year, and we are currently testing our second engine at AEDC and, and looking to conclude that testing this summer. So we, we are approaching the conclusion of the AETP test activity, 
And results continue to show that this engine is performing at the expectations and challenging goals that were set out. So the more we run this engine, the more we like it. The, the targets that we've seen in, in some of the public testimony and, and some of the uh, RFI documents that uh, the Air Force has put out there would indicate a fiscal year 24 EMD start uh, for a formal engineering manufacturing development program with a goal for a 2028 initial service release with the F-35 being the fastest path to bring this capability to market. And, and the reason for that is the, the targeted requirements that we've been working to over this last decade have optimized this engine design for the F-35 specifically. And so because we've been on this path, we have prototypes that are highly product relevant that are in the test cell meeting requirements. It's the most straightforward transition and the earliest path to bring this capability on the F-35 uh, by the end of 28. Uh, and then other applications would, would, would potentially follow that. Once you get over this finish line, what's the value of this market in this class of engine looking at F-35 and beyond to the programs that might come after it? Well, certainly on the F-35, um, the obvious option would be a block upgrade uh, opportunity for the U.S. Air Force F-35As. We also believe that this is a low-risk path to retrofit to existing F-35A assets. GE offers a 100% part number common solution to both the F-35A and the F-35C uh, with our XA100 engine. And uh, we also see a path, although this will ultimately be a government decision and there's a process to go through, uh, but we see a, pot a potential path to have an, uh, an exported, exportability determination that would allow us to, to offer this to international uh, F-35A customers as well. So it's certainly you know, a very important market for you know, what has been described as the cornerstone of the U.S. Air Force tactical fleet for, for years to come. You know, and then beyond that, it gets a little bit more speculative. It's to, to the overall size of the market for adaptive cycle technology. But we think it is the future for, uh, for combat aircraft. David, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you uh, live and in person uh, at Farnborough or uh, the Royal International Air Tattoo. Thanks so very much. Yeah, thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And joining us now is Joe Muir, the Aerospace Commercial Director at the Farnborough International Airshow. And as I said, we're Farnborough International uh, Airshow media partners and Farnborough International is sponsoring our coverage uh, of Britain's greatest uh, airshow uh, in the Hampshire uh, countryside. And Leonardo DRS also sponsors our coverage. Joe, great to have you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking to you today. Uh, we are uh, about a week away from uh, the show and I think, uh, and we had Kevin on, Kevin Craven uh, of ADS on, obviously uh, the sponsor of the air show uh, as the repository of British uh, aerospace and defense uh, industrial uh, representation for the, for the country. Uh, Joe, you know, you've been working really hard to put this together. Our mutual friend, uh, Jeremy Greaves of Airbus, always has been fond of saying that, you know, Farnborough is the Davos of defense. And you guys are actually trying to do that with the Aerospace Growth Forum. And I think there are many people who are convening uh, at the site who might not be as aware of the AGF, what it is and what it is you guys are trying to accomplish. You've been spearheading this. What is the AGF and why is it that people should be tuning in? Absolutely. Well, you, you, you said a very key word there. You said the word convening. And I think to, to give you some context, the what we're trying to do is harness the convening power of the Farnborough International Air Show, um, bringing global leaders together to essentially drive action uh, and tackle some of the, the, the existential threats that face our industry and our planet. So an opportunity to discuss um, and, and collaborate to tackle these global topics, these global issues, but through an aerospace and defense lens. So it's essentially a thought leadership program where, as I said, the leaders of, of industry will come together to collaborate towards these goals. What are some of the topics, right? I mean, sustainability is something that's very, very big. Uh, obviously, everybody's uh, worried uh, about climate change. What are some of the big, what are some of these big cross-cutting topics you guys want to tackle in the AGF? Well, we've got, we've got six key themes that span the air show, but for the AGF, we have seven. So you mentioned sustainability. Sustainability and climate change is probably the biggest threat 
that faces our planet. So certainly um, sustainability um, is, is a very, very key topic. Uh, future flight is another. Um, defense, which is, is something really that runs through all of the other topics as well, you know, sustainability right. within defense, um, uh, sustainability within future flight. Future workforce as well. Skills is something that is a, a huge problem for industry, the skills shortage. So really attracting talent and inspiring people to um, kind of come and join the industry. Innovation. Uh, space, and we've got a dedicated space zone, which will run alongside the, the kind of AGF. But also the, the one that's very specific to the AGF is financing the future. So how do we actually pay, um, pay to, to, to solve these problems? You guys relatively recently put out the list of speakers and participants. Um, you guys are trying to do this, and I'm going to have to ask you this question about uh, you know what the scheduling is, because obviously you guys have to have a star-studded enough uh, a conference to uh, have folks take time away from uh, their commercial schedules uh, at this uh, show, right? Joe, as you know, folks are scheduled to five minute increments, certainly the chief executives uh, with their time that they're spending uh, out there at the show. Who are uh, some of the big speakers who are going to be helping you tackle some of these big issues? I, I, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, people's schedules are, are very busy and the fact that they've um, given up their time to, to speak and um take part in the aerospace global forum really is testament to um, their belief in what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve here. But, you know, just as an example, on the, on the first day, we have Guillaume Foré from uh, CEO of Airbus, Alessandro Perfumo, uh, CEO of Leonardo. Um, uh, we've got some lots and lots of CEOs. It's definitely a, a kind of a, a C-suite level or, you know, contributors. Uh, Joby Aviation, CEO, Eve Aviation, CEO, Vertical. So that kind of covers off your your future flight element of it. Um, we've got the Director General of ESA uh, taking part. Um, we have got uh, the Director Director Gen General of IATA, Willie Walsh, CEO of Rolls-Royce, uh, Warren East. So we've got we've got quite um, quite a broad range of of speakers that are covering all those six topics that, that I mentioned. And we, we've got too many to run through every single one right, right. now. But the, um, the the agenda and the list of speakers are available on our website, which is www.aerospaceglobalforum.com and where you'll find all the information about uh, tickets, passes, the agenda, and obviously the, the contributors and speakers as well. And when you and I uh, met in Washington, you guys are very, very keen that you do this in a sharp, crisp way, right? That doesn't become uh, an, an impediment for the audience, right? How are you guys structuring this on a daily basis so that it becomes uh, part of the cycle, doesn't take away from it, but then becomes additive? How are you guys doing that on a daily basis across the week? Yeah, it's definitely about adding value and not taking away from what we do so well at Farnborough and have traditionally done for so many decades, which is obviously um, doing business. So it's been built and structured in a way to um, facilitate conversation and thought leadership rather than compete with, with what we do. So the, the way it's structured is that the, the Aerospace Global Forum is epicentered in a new structure on the airshow site. So those that are familiar with Farnborough um, and, and what we do here, we have got these, these amazing um, Hollywood-grade sound stages. One will house the Space Zone, the other will, will house the AGF. Um, and within that theatre, there is an AGF main stage and then a, a secondary theatre. Across the entire week, there are only eight key sessions or main sessions. And that, that's very much some of those sessions which I spoke about earlier, the, the Airbus and the Leonardo session. Then you have um, you have the theatre, which will host some of the, the breakout sessions. Um, and it's as I said, it's a thought leadership program. So when we think AGF, it's not just about what's going on in that, in that theatre, but also right. on some of the, um, the on floor theatres as well. So we've built some of this thought leadership into some of the existing infrastructure, but really dialed it up with the, the introduction of this main stage. So, as I said, eight key sessions, one in the morning, and one in the afternoon. And then breakout sessions, unpack sessions is what we're calling them. Um, so it doesn't interrupt um, interrupt kind of core business. Uh, and, and again, right, I mean, what you guys are trying to do is, is keep the air show relevant for a new generation as audience changes, as interests change, to create new sorts of ways of engaging that go beyond just the standard trade show format. You can have that, but the, then you can also have this thought leadership and, and again, convening authority uh, and and something that we're uh, both interested in covering, uh, Joe, and certainly seeing uh, seeing it. 
break a leg in the meantime. Yeah. I know that you're in the, the heavy lifting zone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting, Vargo. I think one of the things you said there is, you know, Farnborough is a five is a five day event and extremely important. But uh, one of the changes that we're trying to make is not just have this conversation end at, at the Farnborough at the Farnborough Air Show. We, we're trying to continue it. And so for the first time, we're offering a, a, a digital package as well so that, you know, whether it be people um, in, in the United States or whether people in Asia want to ensure that they're um, listening to this content and engaging with this content, we're actually launching a digital package as well. And, and that the information for that hopefully will be out um, by the time this podcast goes out. Um, but again, tickets are available um, online. Um, and again, it just gives us that ability to reach those that are unable to travel, but continue the conversation as well. Joe, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. As I said, break a leg uh, between now and then and just letting the audience know that on the eve of the Farnborough Air Show next week, we'll have Gareth uh, Rogers uh, of Farnborough uh, International joining us uh, for a conversation as we go into it. Because at this point, right, you guys have sold out pretty much everything, haven't you? It's it's set to be a fantastic show. And, you know, we can definitely see the, the, the demand uh, we've been away for a long time and we're very much looking forward to welcoming the international aerospace and defense community uh, back to Farnborough. Joe, thanks very much again. All the best. See you soon. Thank you, Vargo. Check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Chips, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. And joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch uh, in our uh, New Jersey and New York Bureau, uh, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy, uh, who is uh, has decamped for the summer uh, to uh, Croatia, but will be making a, a uh, select uh, appearance uh, at the Farnborough International Air Show. Indeed, all of us will be there. Unfortunately, because of scheduling, Sash is joining us first and, and Richard and Ron will be uh, in the next uh, segment. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vargo, and thanks for, uh, thanks for being so accommodating on timings this weekend. Uh, indeed, a very, very uh, important family event, and I wouldn't take you away uh, from it at all. Uh, and thanks always for for being so available. Uh, but we'll make you pay next week, <laughs> week after next, week after next at, in Farnborough, uh, when it'll where it's going to be hot and sweaty. Uh, I fear for the first few days of the show. Um, uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Alex Walmsley of the Royal United Services Institute, uh, among her many affiliations, joined us. Uh, to discuss Boris Johnson's resignation as uh, prime minister uh, and uh, the implications and a little bit uh, of the race uh, on who would follow up at the time that we at the time we thought Ben Wallace was a leader. The YouGov poll certainly suggested that he would beat Rishi Sunak and a number of other uh, competitors, including Penny uh, Mordaunt. And it uh, looks uh, former uh, defense secretary, first female uh, defense secretary. Uh, and Ben Wallace sort of universally admired as somebody of great judgment. Uh, insight uh, and intellect. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like he's uh, pulled out. Sort of give us your sense on on sort of where we are, uh, where we're going, and whether or not this leadership transition that unfortunately times itself very badly uh, with foreign boroughs uh, is going to dent at all any of the messaging that we're going to hear uh, from this administration at the trade show, right? I mean, because this is where uh, the, the government rolls out its industrial strategies, its budgetary strategies, uh, and it looks like we're going to be in a little bit of a holding uh, pattern, uh, potentially. Sort of walk us through what it means uh, and what Ben Wallace, not now apparently in the race, means for who might succeed Johnson as prime minister. Okay, right. I mean, for a start, you know, I, I think it's a great chain that Ben Wallace has decided not to stand, not to run uh, for leadership of the Conservative Party, because I think he, he is a very, very strong candidate and a, and a very strong performer. And he's, a, he's quite clearly a, uh, a natural uh, leader, and I think has been doing an incredibly good job as Defence Secretary. The good news, I think, is that that means that the defence messaging that we are going to hear over the next, uh, whatever, you know, nearly two weeks, first of all, at the Royal International Air Tattoo, Fairford, uh, and then at the Farnborough Show is going to be very consistent. Uh, and I understand that at Riyadh in particular, there's going to be 
quite a, a, a big push on the Tempest program, the um, UK-led uh, next generation combat air system. And uh, I think that, you know, Ben Wallace will clearly be a major part of that. Uh, and certainly, you know, what the companies that we've been talking, talking to have confirmed is that Tempest is still on track for a, uh, you know, flying a demonstrator of some sort, 25, 26. Um, if they can do that, that would be really interesting. Um, you know, the rival French-German-led, uh, I feel we're sort of treading on eggshells egg now, uh, um, SCAF, FCAS program, demonstrator doesn't feel like it's going to be any time before 28, 29 at the moment. It's drifting, the gap between them is widening. But so I think, you know, Ben Wallace saying his defence secretary is good. What does he want from the next Conservative government? Because clearly the next government will be Conservative, certainly up for the next couple of years or so to the next general election. He's stated publicly that he loves his job as defence secretary. He'd like to say in that job. I think every politician has to say that. I think he would also probably quite like to be foreign secretary. And I think that I think he would be a very good foreign secretary. And I think that he would maintain, probably even enhance the UK's very strong line or increasingly strong line of, of recent years, uh, opposing both Russia and China. You know, remember, Ben Wallace has got a very strong security background and he understands the security threat from China as well as any politician at the top and better than the vast majority. So Ben Wallace, you know, he, uh, it's a shame he's not running, but he's he's got a very important job, possibly jobs to do. And I'll be very interested to see which one of those he gets. And, and of course, right, uh, we, we've discussed this several times on the program, a lot of talk that he was going to succeed Jens Stoltenberg. Stoltenberg obviously staying on a year. So Wallace could actually stay on for a year as defense secretary or stay on for almost a year as foreign minister and still end up becoming NATO secretary general uh, in the mold of George Robertson, uh, who um, becomes uh, a very consequential NATO secretary general. Yeah, you know, I always I, it, no, I think that's entirely uh, feasible. Um, entirely plausible um, scenario. I always felt that George Robertson actually was less successful as NATO secretary than he should have been, and he was sorely missed as UK defence secretary. I felt he went too early from UK defense, as UK defence secretary, and uh, you know he just got lost in the NATO job because the NATO job at that time, and this is the comment on him, but I mean he you know, he was just dealt, dealt a, a poor. Uh, deck of cards, but the NATO job that time wasn't actually that interesting, that consequential. Um, whoever takes over from uh, Jan Stoltenberg has got an enormous job to do to keep the NATO alliance as unified as it has become in the last uh, four or five months or so, uh, and to you know evolve its strategy from here. Ben Wallace would do that very, very well indeed. Um, Stoltenberg is doing a fantastic job, and frankly, if he can keep in the job for a while, uh, I think that sort of continuity also matters for NATO. I should also point out, though, right, George Robertson was absolutely critical to Article 5 in NATO, right? I mean, he was in the seat uh, in uh, 2001, having been in office uh, between uh, 99 and 2004. Yes, uh, yes, that's it. That's the term. It's a five-year term. Um, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you, Sash, I mean, you did, uh, and, it, and it's great to hear that the Tempest program is moving on because that is very important, not just to uh, Britain's aerospace and defense industries, but obviously to Sweden and to Italy uh, as well. And of course, time will tell whether these two programs, uh, the SCAF and Tempest, will at some point intersect. Uh, and I believe both sides should be doing more to make sure that they are interoperable. I believe the U.S. should be doing more to make sure that NGAD is interoperable with these European programs as well. Let me just ask you really quick. Uh, Alex uh, did discuss the financial situation as being very tough, that the next uh, prime minister is going to have a challenge. And then these promises of very robust defense spending are unlikely to stand. We've discussed that on the program as well. I mean, do, do we have any greater visibility on what the financial situation is going to look like going forward? Uh, for uh, the next administration? We have absolutely no better visibility than we had um, under the Johnson administration, uh, you know, a week ago. And, you know, a week is a very, very long time in politics. Boy, the last week has, you know, felt like an eternity. But no, we, ha we have no better visibility. Um, but, you know, to recap, and I think Alex's analysis is, um, you know, un very uncomfortable which means it's probably right. 
but you know, the UK has a budget deficit. Um, it's only going to get worse. The UK has an inflation problem. There are challenges in terms of uh, how tax is levied and on whom. Um, none of this makes things easier. Where I think I differ from Alex is that at Agents Partners, we've always taken the view that actually, you know, uh, defence spending is is something that nobody likes doing, but when you do it, you do it because you have to. And at that stage, it goes out outside the normal budgetary uh, environment. So if there is a very clear and present danger, then you spend on defence almost whatever your budget deficit is. That's certainly been the UK policy for the last uh, 120 years or so. It's left us in a pretty dreadful state at various stages. Um, the question is whether the war in Ukraine quite meets that or not. But I mean, you know, if you, you know, if you look at the runners and riders uh, for uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party, I mean, Rishi Sunak, the who's currently, or sorry, who was the former Chancellor and had done a very, very good job in in that role, he is he has no particular bent towards defence. He's a, you know, he's a budgeteer. Um, right. And in fact, if you look at most of the individuals uh, in the t- in the top sort of five six, you know, until you get to Penny, Penny Mordaunt who is currently polling about six, seven um, in terms of the, the MP votes. You know, there's nobody who has any particular interest in defence, but it may not be their call. And I think that is going to be what is going to be most interesting about defence over the next six, six months, two years. If the threatening increases or if the, you know, if the requirements to uh, defend Europe at Ukraine rather than somewhere in middle Europe uh, increases, then you know the, the poor old treasury people are going to have to give, not take. Um, and uh, and one of the things uh, Alex and I did discuss, and I commend people to check out our conversation, uh, was the fact that almost everybody relies on the United States, and that um, actually the industrial base. Uh, is unable to surge uh, and respond, right? During the Libya crisis, it was the United States that furnished precision munitions uh, to Europe. Uh, and now we're finding that U.S. stocks are being depleted, just like British stocks and indeed stocks across uh, across Europe. And, and the, the challenge is how quickly we can reconstitute those stocks. Uh, let me uh, take you to the question of Boeing. Uh, obviously, the Boeing leadership have been out uh, with a whole series of uh, interviews, whether uh, it's with Bloomberg or in Aviation Week or, or elsewhere. What are some of the things that jumped out at you uh, that David Calhoun had to say as chief executive of the world's uh, largest aerospace uh, enterprise? Okay, I, th- I think like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of other people, I was quite shocked by some of the comments that uh, Mr. Calhoun made. Um, you know, it's, it's all very well to be frank, uh, to be, you know, open with people. But I think his comments about effectively casting the max 10 adrift and saying if we cannot get a uh, an exemption from the current congressional uh, rules which are that any aircraft certificated after the end of uh, 2022 has to be certificated with an um, an, uh, an ECAS system ACAS that's the engine indicating and crew alerting system it's the integrated cockpit system that basically when there is a problem prioritizes, and presents all of the information to the crew in a very, very clear way so they can make decisions fast. Arguably, the lack of an ACAS uh, was you know, one of the contributory factors to the two horrible MAX crashes. The crew just didn't know enough soon enough to make the right decisions. Um, you know, if he can't get an exemption from that, he will just can the MAX 10 program. It feels like... Uh, yeah, it feels like putting a gun to your head and saying, you know, come in near and I'll blow my brains out. I mean, it's, it's really unwise. Why is it unwise? The Max family is uncompetitive without a, da- a Dash 10. Airbus will just sell more A321s at better prices. They will use those prices to cross-subsidize the smaller variants, particularly the A320 Neo, and that will drive Boeing into a very, very minor role indeed. I mean, it, you know, it feels to me more and more like Madonna Douglas. The problem is that putting an ACAS onto the Max 10 breaks family similarities uh, across the Max 789, um, and uh, it creates residual value risk that the Maxes do not hold their residual values as well as the uh, A320 Neo family because you know, they're all different. You know, some have got an ECAS, some haven't. So damn if he does that, damn if he doesn't. The silver lining in this or perhaps it's just the straw that I'm clutching onto at the moment, 
is that Boeing is thinking of launching, I can't remember whether we call it an NMA at the moment, but a mid-market aircraft. I think it has to be a 200, not a 250-seater. Um, and something that would fir absolutely firmly compete against the A321neo and particularly the A321XLR, um, and then go a little bit further upwards as well. Uh, and if they are already planning to do that, and therefore they can, you know, they have no requirement for a Max 10, Boeing might be able to take the risk of splitting the market in a different way to Airbus. If you remember, Airbus has got down at the 100 to 150 seat segment, um, they've got the A220, the old Bombardier C series, and then from about 140 seats uh, up to 220, 240 seats, they've got the AG20 Neo family. Boeing might decide to split. The, you know, split that at about 100, 180, 190 seats, have NMA or whatever we're going to call the new aircraft uh, doing the top end of the range, and then it later replace all of the MAX family and go a little bit down into the A220 family as well. That would be rational. Uh, what's the problem? You've, you know, they've got to find $40 billion plus to develop two brand new aircraft because I don't think the MAX is going to stay competitive, you know, much beyond the end of the decade, whatever happens to the MAX 10. Uh, but at least that way, they would have a new aircraft, fair and square, competing against the A321neo. And the A321neo is the threat because that has become more than 50% of Airbus's narrowbody uh, deliveries and way more than 50% of their narrowbody revenues. Uh, and Boeing has got to take that down somehow because otherwise Airbus just romps away. Uh, it, it is uh, it is uh, an incredible uh, situation. Sash, thanks very much and look forward to having us all uh, together next week. And then, of course, uh, we're going to be doing daily updates from the sidelines of the show. Thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you. Look forward to next week. And joining us now are Ron and Richard. Unfortunately, we couldn't all do this together. As I said, we're going to do it all together next week. Guys, welcome back on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Always great to be on, Vago. Thank you. Uh, and thank you uh, very much, because both of you are on the move as we uh, record this, as Sash was on the move uh, as well. Uh, Ron, uh, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what Sash uh, had to say about Boeing. You've written thoughtfully about it uh, as well. Uh, Richard, you've been commenting on it as well. But first, uh, as we uh, always ask, how did the group perform this week? Give us sort of the broader market dynamic and how uh, defense and aerospace uh, companies performed in that context. Yeah, so I think the big market news this week was the non-farm payrolls. Uh, and non-farm payrolls came in above what people were looking for. Uh, and that's sort of a mixed message, right? Because it, it means the underlying economy is probably doing a little better than people thought, but that also assures that uh, the Fed will probably do a 75 basis point um, raise the next, at the next meeting. Um, so we're still seeing rates go up. Uh, on that, you know, the 10-year... The uh, was hovering below 3%. Now it's above 3%. It ended the week at 3.1%. Uh, when you look across our group, um, the defense stocks broadly did better than the commercial stocks. Uh, just to give you a, a few, Northrop Grumman was up 3.5%. General Dynamics was up 3%. Um, Boeing was up 1%. Uh, interestingly, Airbus was up almost 3%. And then some of the other stuff we look at, WTI crude and Brent crude were almost the same at about $106. Um, and then one of the things I've been starting to, starting to track is the producer price index. When you pull it back, you can look at some of the sub-segments. And aerospace fasteners is one of, the, one of the segments. And if you look at the price rise in aerospace fasteners in the year through May, they were up almost 30%, which I thought was kind of almost mind-blowing, 28%. Um, and titanium uh, year-to-date is up almost 6%. So we're seeing some of that stuff uh, uh, flow through. But uh, so broadly, you know, defense did better than than commercial aero uh, on a week where, um, you know, the real the real story was the jobs number. Uh, and uh, what's really interesting to me, right, up like a rocket, down like a feather, we are seeing gas prices uh, dropping for a whole variety of reasons, you know, whether that's as production increases or demand is decreasing because of price, right? I mean, that's the reason why a price subsidy is always a bad thing. If you want to actually reduce the price, have the market actually get to equilibrium and start dropping and you know, all of a sudden people realize, oh, I'm losing money, uh, even though when I'm charging, uh, I'm charging them more and the 
prices will come down. Um, let's move uh, to uh, the, the Boeing news, because unfortunately, our time is a little bit shorter because we have a little bit more of an action-packed show this week. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. You heard what Sash had to say uh, about the Boeing news. Obviously, uh, David Calhoun uh, getting out there and talking more. We're going to hear from uh, the company's leadership uh, in a little bit over a week uh, at Farnborough. Um, give, us, give us your sense on, on what he had to say. Uh, and Richard, want to get your sense uh, as well. Start us off, Ron. If you look at you know, you know, Boeing's backlog, I think you can attribute about 600 airplanes to to what would be the MAX 10 um, or potentially the MAX 10. And you'd have to think if if the MAX 10 were to go away, some of those aircraft would go away. Not all of them. Some of them would probably convert to to MAX 9s. But um, you know, you, you'd really see, like Sash suggested, Boeing retreating from that segment of the market. Uh, and it would, it would really, I mean, nail home uh, the view, maybe no longer a view, a thesis, it's probably just a reality at that point, um, that in the narrowbody market, that Boeing would be at about 35% market share and Airbus would be at about 65% market share. Some folks have suggested, and this is one point where I, I, I might differ a little bit with uh, Sash, that it would give Airbus a ton of pricing power on the A321. That, that's probably true to airlines that would be only buying A321s. But they get rolled up into most likely with a lot of airlines, a package of other airplanes. Um, so, you know, just like the, the A220 can, can be rolled up with other aircraft, so can an, an A321. So if an airline was looking at wide bodies and A320s and A321s, maybe the pricing aspect of it for Airbus wouldn't be quite as strong as um, some people think. But I guess it really depends. Richard, uh, your sense? So many things wrong with this picture. You know, first of all, from reading the room, regulatory standpoint, the idea of them saying or Calhoun saying, oh, you must give it to us or we'll kill the program. That is that completely contravenes everything that I think people are looking at in Washington in terms of greater regulatory oversight, and greater independence of regulators to be removed from these kinds of business pressures. And, you know, obviously with uh, with an investigation going on between the relationship between the FAA and Boeing, I think that makes it pretty much impossible. So the optics alone and the practicality of threatening a program in order to get regulatory approval were just frankly kind of dunderheaded. And then you've got the other problem that, you know, the MAX 10 arguably was just getting going. You know, there was that rumor of a de- or that talk of the Delta order, possibly at Farnborough, does this put that at risk. And not only that, Boeing people have told me and others that it's more than just the 600. Actually, quite a few of the TBD orders are for MAX 10s. It's just that people don't want to specify it because they don't want to pay higher pre-delivery payments uh, when they specify a larger jet. And as a consequence, I think you're looking at a lot more than 600 orders. Now, there are so many other issues, I think, at play here. But just the idea of saying something at all at this point just struck me as kind of truly bizarre. Um, let me ask uh, sort of a broader uh, question and, and start with you, uh, Richard. Right? I mean, there there has been a lot of uh, debate. Right? I mean, anytime news flow like this comes out, um, you know, there is a little bit of a debate. Hey, are people being too tough uh, on the Boeing leadership? Or, or you know, or is the criticism appropriate? Is he making more progress? Uh, are these uh, the right kinds of calls? I mean, it's interesting to me the number of people who found it very problematic, the politicization of of this. Um, right? I mean, towards the end of the the year, uh, look to lawmakers uh, to try to intervene. Uh, somehow, the the imagination also could go well. You know, if a Republican Congress comes, will they be more amenable or not? I find that to be. A little bit absurd because the, the criticism of the company was remarkably bipartisan uh, and indeed led by Patty Murray, who, you know, is in the eyes of many Senator Boeing. Um, you know, give, give us your sense, Richard, on, on whether, you know, sort of a, a, a quick sort of snapshot about whether or not, you, you know, and what people are telling you. Is Calhoun making more progress, for example, than might meet the eye and are, are folks being a little bit too tough on him in terms of the criticism? You know, I don't think they're being tough enough, frankly, because the idea that somehow the political card is the one you play rather than, say, bulking up on technical capabilities and engineering and whatever else and just sort of putting your nose to the grindstone to compete, 
it's just an appallingly bad idea. It speaks to leadership that, frankly, has an extremely superficial playbook, for want of a better term. I, you know, everything you added all up, all of the doubts that Calhoun has soured about their future as a commercial jetliner manufacturer, refusing to tamp down rumors of a 777X cancellation, now adding to that triple, you know, 737 MAX 10 rumors of cancellation, which he's created. And then, of course, you know, the inexplicable MAX production issues and the 787 even less explicable. Everything, it just, the whole thing adds up to, frankly, somebody who has an idea of enhancing shareholder value by maybe breaking up the company. And the way to do that, to obtain approval for breaking up the company is to make the situation so awful that regulators basically feel, regulators including the Pentagon, feel they have no choice but to approve that breakup. Now, I think this is a bizarrely bad idea. I think it's still hopefully a departure scenario, but I'm hard pressed to come up for any other explanations for this level of borderline malfeasance when it comes to their commercial jetliner unit. And we're going to hear, uh, obviously, more from company leadership when we all, all, all get to Farnborough here in a little over a week. Uh, Ron, sort of give us your, uh, your sense and, and then a couple of other issues I want to um, uh, strike not to grind more salt into potentially this open wound, but Airbus uh, delivery figures. Uh, and then the weird thing that the, the Russians uh, pulled off. But, but go ahead, uh, Ron, whatever you want to add to this as we capstone it uh, and, and move on. Yeah, I mean, the thing I find fascinating about this is you know why is this even happening in the 10 in the first place well it's because of the aircraft safety and certification reform act that was put in place because of the max in the first place um and you know boeing arguably was well aware of the deadlines and the timing and so on and so forth um so it's you know why are we getting down to this thing where it it might not happen in time they knew for ever since this became a law, that this was the issue. So, you know, it's, does Congress need to give them a dispensation on this because they didn't get their homework done on time? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to feel sorry for them when, A, they're the whole reason the law happened in the first place, and right, B, right. they more than well understood the timing of everything. And, and I would point out, right, I mean, it was uh, legislation uh, that was bipartisan uh, in its uh, uh, construct, and at the time, uh, you know, supported by uh, the Trump administration. Um, let, let's. Could I just uh, add one thing? Go, go ahead. Uh, go ahead you know, I'd add to all of this that it's not like they're trying to be good corporate citizens by bulking up on engineering and talking about you know creating a new product for the first time in 20 years, a new clean sheet product. They said it's not going to happen for another couple of years. So it's not as though they're, you know, moving forward, this argument or this, as Sash put it, grasping at straws that, well, maybe they'd kill the Max 10 to make way for a clean sheet design. That's kind of the repeal and replace argument. I don't think it has a great deal of credibility. They instead seem to simply be intent on damaging the commercial unit's competitiveness, not just in terms of existing programs and programs in gestation, but even the very future itself. Uh, in, in, indeed. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, very uh, quickly, Richard, start us off with Airbus numbers and Ron, uh, finish up uh, with your interesting revelation on uh, Russia and jetliners and returning them, which is sort of weird. Go ahead, Richard, talk to us about Airbus. Yeah, through, uh, through the first half of the year, Airbus delivered almost 300 jets. Um, you know, clearly getting up to that, well, obviously with narrow bodies, they're going to get to 60-something sometime next year. Um, they're making good progress. They had, interestingly, another great month of orders above deliveries, uh, you know, 1.3 to 1 book-to-bill ratio, not bad at all. So basically, they're executing pretty well. And, uh, you know, there talk, there's talk about supply chain disruptions impacting their ramp, but uh, so far it hasn't really showed up yet, has it? Ron, anything you want to add to that? No, I mean the the Airbus numbers were 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 quite good. Uh, very quickly, uh, the Russian news flow and what it means from from your perspective. Really interesting story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, the S seven, uh, it's one of the Russian airlines, uh, and Airbridge Cargo, 
which is you know owned by uh, Volgna Detner, um, there was some reports in the press that they are looking at returning some aircraft if they can to their lessors. Uh, S7 was was looking at potentially two Boeing 737-8 Maxes. It's unclear if that was before you know that this has been going on on the Maxes anyway before or after uh, the start of the uh, Ukrainian situation. Uh, but what's a little more meaningful is um, uh, Airbridge Cargo ABC is looking at uh, returning somewhere around 15 plus or minus one or two 747 freighters um, to uh, AirCap. And it, it, what's, what's, what's fascinating about this is, one, it, it might imply that some of these less, some of the, the operators in Russia are trying to think about life after, after what's going on, um, one. Um, and two, Everybody, everybody, meaning all the lessors who have aircraft in Russia, have pretty much written them down to zero. I mean, I think I mean every lessor has at least the publicly traded ones have. Um, so this might suggest that there is some recovery value. Now, it's it's not that simple because the maintenance records on these airplanes have to be crystal clear, and you know they, they can't have um, you know you know how can I say sort of Russian-made knockoff parts on them and so on and so forth. So there's some complications there. Um, but it, it's something to watch because it could suggest to the lessors that have written these fleets down to zero that there actually might be some recovery value above and beyond just insurance recoveries. So uh, so we'll see. It's something to watch. Uh, but I thought that was an interesting tidbit this week. In about 30 seconds, uh, Richard, if you want to uh, jump uh, on that or anything else as we round up the week. I thought it was indeed a very interesting development. Kudos to Ron and his team for uh, uncovering it. And uh, hopefully it speaks to something good, but I, obviously it's fraught with difficulty, as he says. Indeed, guys. Thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward uh, for all uh, of us to be together uh, next week when uh, we do this uh, show in the UK on the eve of the Farnborough International Air Show. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, bon voyage and see you there. Yeah, bon voyage, uh, Mago. Uh, looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Vago, and see you on the uh, the mean tarmac of uh, Farnborough. We'll all be there. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.